The sermon text is Romans chapter 6, verses, I'm going to start with verse 14 and read to the end of the chapter. So Romans chapter 6, starting at verse 14, and I'm reading from the NIV translation. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at the time from the things you now are ashamed? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. This is the word of God. Well, here at Grace International, we love grace, don't we? It is in our name, Grace Church, um, what we're all about. We're all about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion on earth. All other religions are about what you must do. But Christianity is essentially about what's done. I think chapter 5 of Romans uh, and verse 1 summarizes it perfectly. If you haven't been, us, been with us for the last few weeks, Paul perfectly summarizes that in 5 verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw the wrath of God we deserved for our sin is quenched at the cross. Grace brings peace with God and security. What Jesus did in the past guarantees what happens to us in the future, glorious salvation. And it gives us assurance in the present difficulties, in the present sufferings. It's all because we have now been joined to Christ and transferred from the realm of Adam to that of Jesus. Grace wins. Grace reigns. Grace is liberating. Isn't that a liberating truth? 
But in chapter 6, in chapter 6, we saw that not everyone was happy with grace. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago, Paul's opponent stated the question, or it was stated for him by Paul. Isn't grace immoral because it promotes sin? Paul said where, where sin increased, grace increased even more. And Paul said, no, no, because Christians are dead to sin. How can, how can they continue in sin? And the same person is after Paul today in our passage. Saying, isn't grace immoral because it permits sin? Because Paul said in verse 14, if you glance, we are not under law. We are under grace. And that person says, well, then isn't grace immoral because, you know, it permits sin? And that person says this thing, we need some kind of rules. We need law in place for there to be morality. Otherwise, you know, it's, it's chaos. Everyone kind of just continues, you know, the old ways. We need law. And it's our natural thinking, isn't it? Because this is how things work in this world. This is how we think naturally. You know, we need law. It exists for there to be an order, right? Law punishes those who break it, and, and the law rewards those who obey it. Law, in other words, restrains evil. We need it. Or take, for example, the criminal law of any state. If you steal something or kill someone, the law will punish you and you will go to prison. So people think twice before attempting robbery or murder. And the conclusion is, that's good, we need law because it restrains evil. And same goes for the other areas, you know, of public life. But even the law has limited ability to restrain evil. Uh, the law may impact our behavior, how we act, but can it change someone on the inside? Once in our Bible study, a, a non-Christian student was present and he told about his car journey. A group of guys was traveling by car from Warsaw, Poland to Riga. And the thing is that the, the, the guy who was driving that particular car was drunk. And now, I don't know, he said it like he was slightly proud of it, this, this student. And now someone in the Bible study, a Christian student, politely suggested that it is not a particularly wise thing to do. And I think he was way too polite. In fact, it was a criminal thing to do. And the law could not do anything to restrain him from drinking and driving. In other words, law can do nothing to safeguard morality. Now, the Apostle Paul drops this kind of very big idea here in, in verse 14, and, and kind of he leaves it. So we will have to come back to it next year, which sounds a long time away, not, not so much, not, you know, a month barely. And he will pick up on Christians' relationships with law in chapter 7. The question he does want to um, 
to uh, expand today is the following. Can the gospel safeguard morality? Does the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord, actually works when it comes to sin? And you know, Paul's answer all the way has been yes. Yes, the gospel of grace has not just given us the certificate of justification, but a new life. Jesus is so generous with us. We not only share in Jesus' verdict, justified, made right, but Paul says we also share in Jesus' victory over sin. That's Paul's big, big truth. So last week we saw because we, we, we're dead in sin, we don't have to obey sin so negatively. And today now, today's passage, we see that because we are alive to God now, we should obey God so positively, positive implications. The right response to grace positively is obey God. So the, the, big, the big truth for today, my friends, is offer yourselves, offer yourselves as willing slaves to God. That's the big truth. I know Robert already kind of set us up in, 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 in the introduction, but it kind of sounds weird that the whole slave language sounds weird, doesn't it? But it didn't sound so weird to the people in the first century, Rome. The slaves or servants who got released from their master, they could, they could then choose to give up their freedom to become the slaves of another master. And why would they do it? Well, most in most often, mo most frequent cases, it was because of their financial need. That's how they could continue um, existing. So they gave up their freedom and made themselves slaves of another. Well, Paul does confess later in, in verse 19 that this metaphor has its limits um, because the slave of God does sound as if, you know, if as if God would kind of force us into the relationships because we need money. You know, that kind of, and Paul says, you know, it's, it, this metaphor is, is, is limited. But Paul's point is simple. The way you behave shows whom you belong to. You now belong to God, so obey him. Offer yourselves as living slaves to God. So while the slavery metaphor it has its limits, Paul nevertheless runs with it and gives us three reasons for offering ourselves as willing slaves to God. The first reason is because the alternative is not good. It's slavery to sin, verse 16. Glance at verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the, the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, 
which leads to righteousness. Now, we already heard um, in the past weeks that we don't have to be persuaded to sin. Uh, You know, we, we are being born in this world in Adam. We are born sinful. We want to sin, and we actually do sin. We are born in this world as slaves of sin. But Paul says, not anymore. Not anymore. Jesus released us from slavery of sin. What now? Are we now free to live how we like? Are we truly free? And Paul says, no. Jesus transferred us from one form of slavery to another. We are released from slavery to sin for slavery to God. What are we going to do about it? That's our new reality. What are we going to do about it? You see, our behavior, Paul says, shows to whom we belong, whose slaves we are, and there are really two options, sin or God. Well, Paul mentions a few more words, obedience, righteousness, and God, ultimately God. Now, a few men from, uh, from church, uh, we meet weekly to discuss the Sunday sermon. I've referred, mentioned this a number of times. We chat about what's been helpful about the previous Sunday sermon, and, uh, and then we then we talk about what might, what might be improved about it, and then we look at the next, next week's passage. And so this Tuesday, as we were reflecting on verse 16, someone in a group shared how this reminded him of this very old song. I bet no one here knows the song. It is a song by uh, already an elderly man called Bob Dylan. And the, 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 sum, the, the song is called Gotta Serve Somebody. And here is one verse and then a chorus. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. I'm I'm just going to read it Uh, from Bob Dylan. Listen in. You might be a rock and roll addict prancing on the stage. You might have drugs at your command, women in a cage. You may be a businessman or some high degree thief. They may call you a doctor or they may call you chief, and then chorus. But you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, you are, you're gonna serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. I think Bob Dylan kind of puts his finger exactly on what Paul is talking about, very, very precisely. And I think this truth just flies into face, right, of our modern, modern culture uh, that so values freedom, that so values autonomy. You know, we're free, we are autonomous individuals in this world. Talk to your friends, talk to your friends and they will say they are free individuals. They will say they can perfectly choose to do good if they want. 
yeah, sometimes, you know, it slips, but that's just, you know, human weakness. You know, we are kind of a little weak once in a while, but they can perfectly choose to do good. I remember how as a young pastor, I sat down for a chat with an acquaintance from my student years. He initiated the, 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 you know, the, the meeting and there we were sitting in my study and I could tell he was coming from his night job as a DJ in the Old Town Club. Uh, he was you know, slightly bruised, slightly tired, slightly probably hungover. So I asked him, you know, what's going on? What's going on? You know, what's, what's the problem? What's bothering you? And he said, as they usually do, you know, ah, you know I, had, uh, I have this kind of drinking problem. And, and then, you know, I got into a fight with my girlfriend and then she dumped me. I mean, it's always the same story, isn't it? Um, and you know what? He didn't sound like a guy in control of his life. You know, like he could freely choose to do good. Quite the opposite. It very much looked like his will was bent to wickedness. He, he could do nothing about it. Well, because it was. Because he was enslaved to sin. You see, the only freedom that our non-Christian friends enjoy in this world is found in verse 20. Glance at verse 20. That's the only freedom. It is a freedom from control of righteousness. Paul says, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. And when, when, only when the bondage of sin gets broken in our lives, we are able to see its true face and its true fruit that is shameful even to mention, verse 21. We, we look back at our lives as non-Christians, what we did, what we thought, what we said, and Paul says, of course, we feel ashamed. But that only happens when the bondage of sin in our lives is broken. You, you see, that is why Paul is not talking to us here today as neutral. He's not talking to us as autonomous individuals. He's not setting before us simply a choice we have to make, you know, serve sin or serve God as if we would ever be able to choose rightly in, in, in our own selves. No, naturally, Paul says, we all are slaves to sin. Paul is, however, describing our new situation, our new reality. When we believed in Christ, we, were stop, we stopped being slaves of sin. And we have become slaves of God. So Paul simply says, now act like it. Act like you are slaves of God. Faith in Jesus is commitment to Jesus as Lord. It's not neutral. It's not like, you know, we're not in a neutral. It's a commitment to Jesus as Lord. Our new situation, in other words, has implications. So Paul says your lifestyle points to your master. Obey God. So whose slave are you? Think about whose slave are you today? What does your behavior reveal? Who's your master? Now the question, the question of course, arises then, where can I find the power 
Where can I find the power for such a massive change um, to enact in my life? Remember, Paul is not talking um, just about our new status made right, justified. He's talking about a new life we now have and are supposed to live. So secondly, Paul says, offer yourselves as willing slaves to God because now you are actually able to obey God. I think that's a wonderful, wonderful truth. Previously, you were not, but yet now you are. Colossians verse 17, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. A number of years ago, I heard this really short description of our relationships with sin. Here it is in three, three sentences, three blocks. Before the fall, Adam, first people, were able not, well, sorry, able not to sin. They were actually free. They were able not to sin. After the fall, including all of us here, we are not able not to sin. It's just, there's no case. And thirdly, in the new creation, when Jesus comes back for us, when he brings the new heavens and new earth, we are going to be not able to sin. We're not going to be able to sin. It's going to be perfect, perfect. So we live in a period after the fall and before the new creation. And, and so we have to confess, friends, today, if we're honest, that we are not able not to sin. We look at our lives. We look at what's going on inside of us. And we have to confess it. You know, in our thoughts and words and deeds, through our negligence and weakness, and even through our deliberate fault, we sin. That's, we, that, that's what we confess before the Lord's Supper as we bow our heads and come before God, begging for his mercy and grace, right? There's a general description of our relationships with sin. And Paul will have much to say about it again in chapter 7. But this otherwise tight summary, I think it falls short of one thing. It doesn't take into account the cross. So Paul adds, before we were joined to Christ, we were not able to obey it at all. Because of our, you know, unregenerate hearts. But once we are joined to Christ, we are able to obey from our heart. Why? Because we have regenerate hearts. That's, that's the one powerful truth in a Christian life. But what sort of obedience is Paul talking about here? Of course, not the law. Not the law. Christians are no longer under authority of the law. 
you know, that God laid down for Israel in the Old Testament through Moses, meaning the law doesn't justify us or condemn us anymore, not under the law. Why is it important to see this? Because like some in Paul's day, we might start to think that if we don't have to obey, you know, the kind of mosaic law and commandments, etc., then we don't have any duty at all. No imperatives in our lives. It's all grace. It's all what has been done. No imperatives in our lives anymore. But that's not what Paul is saying, isn't it? What Paul talks about here is we are not under the law. We don't have to obey the law. Now it is obedience of faith to the gospel, in other words. Faith is commitment to Jesus as Lord. The gospel has claimed our allegiance now. So we bait. Again, no neutrality, no autonomy. The change of master is seen in the change of obedience. We have new obedience. But I think Paul gets more specific here. Did you notice? Notice how he doesn't say in verse 17, you have become obedient from your heart to God. True, but very kind of broad. What does he say in verse 17? Obey the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. Here is the power for Christian life. What happened when you became a Christian? Yes, God not only declared you right with him, yes, but he also gave you the Holy Spirit. But for what? For what did, you, did he give you the Holy Spirit? According to Paul here, to commit yourself to the teaching of the Bible. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to commit yourself to the teaching of the Bible. Now, have you, have you ever seen, well, let's take the U.S. president. There's some people who can affirm this or deny it. When the U.S. president gets sworn into the office, does he still have to place his hand on the Bible? Is that true? Is there a Bible somewhere? I think I've seen, yeah? So, uh, good, we, we, we clear that. And, and so, um, the president, as he gets sworn into the office, places his hand on the Bible. And I think, so if I Google it right, here is what he says. I do solemnly swear, or affirm, that I will faithfully execute my, the, the office of the president of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. And I thought to myself, what a great picture for Christian obedience to the gospel. When we become Christians, we effectively do a very similar thing as we commit ourselves to the teaching of the scriptures. Well, it might, it might sound, uh, sound something like this, a Christian kind of uh, you know, commitment, it's, it could sound like this. I do solemnly affirm that I will faithfully execute my Christian duties and will to the best of my ability preserve, protect, and defend the gospel. 
the gospel of God concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I think a great picture, a great picture of what happens when someone becomes a Christian. We actually commit ourselves to something. We commit ourselves to God's word. And here's the challenging thing for us. Is that true of our Christian lives? And I think broadly, generally speaking, I would say immediately, yes, of course it is. Okay? But is that always true of our lives practically? Do you remember uh, Pastor William Taylor from London a little more than a month ago? He was here uh, up front encouraging us to continue growing as Christians. You know, he might have come across as a bit too straight or commanding, especially amongst some of the Indonesians, I think. But, but that's who he is. He's a former captain of the royal, you know, royal green jackets in the British Army. He can't be different. That's who he is. Um, but that's what he always does as we sit down annually, normally when I visit for the preaching conference in London. That's what he, that's what he always does with me. As we have a cup of coffee, he sits down, he, he stares you know, with the kind of piercing eyesight, he stares at me and he says, are you reading your Bible? Are you saying your prayers? And the third thing is pretty much, are you loving your wife? It's like, staring at me. I know always that he's going to ask these questions to me. In other words, what he's saying, Anders, are you still a Christian? Are you actually still a Christian? Is your behavior showing that you serve Lord, that you are the slave of God still, that you are a Christian? What about us here? And how is our commitment to the teaching of the Bible seen? Practically, are we, are we actually obeying God from our heart? Are you reading your Bible? May I just turn these questions now to you? It's very convenient, isn't it? Are you saying your prayers? Are you serving sacrificially your spouse for those who are married? Or are you serving your brothers and sisters if you're a single student or... Uh, is time with your brothers and sisters in the word an absolute priority in your life? Or do you sometimes feel spiritually dry? You know, or there is not a lot of hunger for spiritual things in your life. Could it be that your commitment to God's word has weakened? Or meeting in the Bible studies with others is not as central as it used to be some time ago. You know, whenever I feel spiritually dry, and pastors do feel spiritually dry sometimes, I know I have to recalibrate my thinking and my actions. That's kind of a red flag, red flag there. Christian, don't you know, Paul says, or Anders, don't you know, Paul says, you have a new master. And you know you, your master, know who your master is by your actions, to whom you obey. It's either sin or it's righteousness. Verse 18, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. 
we have been liberated from sin and enslaved to a new master, God. That has enabled us to obey the gospel from our hearts. So let's do it. Now, why bother about whether we are slaves of God or we are slaves of the gospel? Well, because of the outcome. That's the third thing. Offer yourselves as willing slaves to God because the alternative is going to be always sin, firstly. Secondly, because now we are able to actually obey God. But thirdly, because slavery to God leads to holiness and eternal life. The flip side is, we'll see, is wickedness and ever-increasing wickedness and death. Let's again, so verses 16, 19, and 22. I'm, I'm going to read those three verses. 16, again, slavery to sin leads to death. 19, second half 19, just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. And verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin, and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. Isn't that a great motivation to offer ourselves to God? He will take care of our lives. He will take care of your life. He will take care of my life. He will make us more like Jesus now. And we will be like Jesus when we see him face to face. This is what God does. What a great motivation. Is the road to holiness an easy road? Is it? No. Is it mandatory? Yes. Yes, it is. Because again, the alternative is, as Paul says, ever increasing wickedness that leads to death. Here is the principle of Christian growth. There is no such thing as status quo. Namely, you know, a current state of things that just stays like that. There is no such thing as status quo in Christian life. You either grow or you backslide. That's the one important principle in Christian life. You either press on by grace to commit yourself to the teaching of Scripture, if we take the, the, the language of this passage, or, or we gradually go back to the old ways of impurity and wickedness, only two options. There's no status quo. The, you know, there's no, no neutral ground. No neutral ground for Christians. You know, I'm just going to take a break from the church and uh, the Bible and enjoy the moment of my, you know, kind of whatever Christian freedom, Christian status quo. There is no such, it's a trap. There's no such thing. That's never a good idea because the only freedom 
you will enjoy is the freedom from righteousness. That sort of freedom enslaves to sin. And eventually it kills. It kills the soul. Freedom from sin is not and had never been freedom to sin. And I think that's why Paul draws this kind of slightly confusing parallel in verse 19. We'll look at verse 19. The parallel is slightly confusing. Just as you were very active to do wicked and impure things when you were a non-Christian, you were very active. So now be as active to pursue holiness, purity. You know, when you become a Christian, you do not suddenly become passive. You know, the wrong response to grace is, it's all done, so I'm passive. You know, it's kind of, I'm just going to enjoy floating to the heaven. No, that's, that's a lie. That's just um, what Satan would want us to believe. Paul says the right response to grace is be as active in pursuit of purity and holiness as you were active to do bad things, to do wicked things, to live in sin. Just mirror the same activity, but just in a different direction. That's what Paul is saying. The right response to grace is... You have a new life to live. You have a new boss, God. You have a new loyalty, the scriptures. And you have a new heart to obey. Now, the parallel between the activity of our old life and our new life is not symmetrical. That's where I'm going to kind of put a, put a stop the parallel between our old activity and new activity is not symmetrical. What do, what do I mean by that? The wicked activity of our old life actually earned us eternal death. Okay, we earned it. We earned it. But the righteous activity of our new life, pursuit of purity, holiness, everything that is good, everything that builds up another, everything that loves another person, well, it's a gift. We do not earn it. Look at our closing verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Wages and gift. You see, our toiling and striving to obey our new master from our hearts and to pursue holiness and purity is in itself a gift of God and it grants us eternal life. Do you remember the verse from Ephesians? That in Christ, God has already prepared us all the good works to live in. We just have to do it. We just have to live in them. It is a gift. And my friends, this is gift that the Lord Jesus so graciously shares with us. Jesus not only shares with us his verdict... Righteous, sin defeated, righteous. 
he also shares with us his victory over sin. We don't have to obey sin anymore. We do have to obey God. Isn't Jesus generous? Isn't Jesus generous? So let's offer, therefore, ourselves as willing slaves to him alone. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we marvel at your grace. Uh, grace that brought us from the spiritual death to a spiritual life. So, Father, as we think and ponder and reflect on your grace and on what we share in Jesus, may we be humbled and extraordinary, active for the purity and for uh, uh, righteousness now, gracious father we on our left on our uh, on our own we know that we will backslide but father we praise you that as you made us christian you gave us spirit to commit ourselves to the word of your grace and so, Father, we ask that as we do that, as we daily commit ourselves to your word, prayers, fellowship with our brothers and sisters, you would help us and enable us to increasingly pursue purity, pursue righteousness. Father, we need your help. We confess and wrong. We can't do it. And so we ask you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.